Did you know when you immediately report a concussion, you return to play six days faster than those who fail to report? Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner. Welcome back to Therapist in Motion podcast. This is Dan kind of hosting as Becca is joining me today and we have two amazing guests. I'm going to hand it over to Becca as she is going to be the driver on the pod today as she is staring very evilly at me and trying not to laugh. Thanks so much, Dan. I love being in charge, so this works out perfect for me. As Dan mentioned, we have two amazing guests with us today. So I'm going to introduce them, and then we're going to get into this. So first, we have Dr. Glynis Seaman. She is the medical director of the Brain Injury and Sports Neurology Center and a neurologist in the Lewis Headache Center at Barrow Neurological Institute. Big words are hard for me. She also serves as the program director for the Sports Neurology and Traumatic Brain Injury Fellowship, as well as the medical director of both the Domestic Violence Brain Injury Program and the Barrow Concussion Network. She is board certified in adult neurology and brain injury medicine by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. She is an unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant for the NFL and an independent neurologist for the Arizona Cardinals and serves as a neurology consultant for ASU Athletics. So as you can imagine, we're talking about concussions today, so we definitely have two experts, and let me talk about our other one next, which is Dr. Tamara McLeod, is the Athletic Training Program Director and Professor of Athletic Training Research Professor in the School of Osteopathic Medicine in Arizona and the John P. Wood D.O. Endowed Chair for Sports Medicine at A.T. Still University, which is located in Mesa, for those of you who may not live in Arizona. Her research has focused on the pediatric athlete with respect to sport-related concussion, and she serves as a member of the AIA Sports Medicine Advisory Committee and as well as a member of the Head, Neck, and Spine Committee with the NFL. So, ladies... Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being with us today. I should also mention before we get started, they're also going to be at our huddle conference, April 5th and 6th. So we're really excited to be able to sit down and talk with both of you today. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So one of the things I wanted to ask you all first is there are some more recent new international guidelines when it comes to concussions in sports. And so... Tamara, if you don't mind, I'll start with you. And if you don't mind just telling us a little bit about what some of those new guidelines may be. Yeah, so the the International Concussion and Sport Group meets every three years or so. They review the evidence in a number of different areas and decide whether or not we need to change our guidelines on how we're managing concussion clinically. Um, And they also provide some kind of future directions for research. And the pandemic pushed off the meeting for two consecutive years. um, And the group finally met in Amsterdam um, about a year ago. Um, and those uh, the guidelines from that came out in June. And so I think some of the biggest takeaways re- in regards to how we manage concussion, the first is introducing early aerobic exercise. There is a great body of evidence that exercise is beneficial. I think we know that for a lot of different um, health conditions. And it's this way with concussion. So I think that's the, the first takeaway. Um, strict rest is actually prohibitive, does not help recovery at all, and often delays it. And I think the second biggest takeaway is really um, a modification to the return to sport strategy. So historically, 
an athlete would sustain a concussion, we would say, rest until your symptoms go away, and then we would start this return protocol to get them back into sport. And now it's almost seamless with the injury and includes both treatment, rehab, and then kind of those higher level sport specific activities. So in theory, the recommendations are 24 to 48 hours of rest, followed by this return to sport strategy that can start as early as day two post-concussion. A question for both of you. So we were kind of talking about it before we did the podcast, just concussion protocols have changed so much over the past, I mean, 10, 15, even five years. So just even starting with kind of the exercise is good. We were, you know, we were told long ago, like they shouldn't be working out. It makes symptoms worse, all of that. How is it in both of your practices? How have you talked through with both patients and maybe other providers who don't specialize in concussions, the importance of getting them back into some type of movement? I think the evolution's been interesting. So years ago, obviously, we didn't really understand the importance and the uh, significance of a concussion. So obviously, in sports, people would be knocked out, see stars, what have you, and go right back in. And then over time, it's kind of evolved to not only understanding what concussions are and I, you know, the importance of taking people out, but then really being conservative with management. And then we've learned with you know, the research and guidelines is that's actually detrimental. So when I see an athlete, especially, I usually see them pretty early on in clinic because they're usually referred pretty quickly. But there are times I see them two to four weeks after. So especially in those who have been told to rest physically and academically, that's a focus of that conversation. So we do want to treat their symptoms, get them into therapies if need be. But okay, we got to stop that plan, right? Start getting you back in. Um, because as they're recovering and when you know, we do return them to sport, they have to make these, you know, these steps anyway. So an athlete feels like, okay, I'm doing something, I'm working towards that goal by starting their activity. These athletes are athletes, right? Telling them to sit at home and do nothing is not good for a lot of reasons. And this way they feel like they're, you know, around their teammates, they're still in shape, they're still doing something, but mentally they're not going nuts, right? Um, and then academically, obviously, I know kids prefer to be in their sport rather than school, but emphasizing you're not going back to your sport until you're back to school. I mean, regardless of what you've done physically, you have to be fully back. And also, uh, you know, it allows them to feel maybe less stressed in a sense, because school can be maybe physically hard with light sensitivity, headaches, what have you, but you're getting more and more behind the farther out you are, right? So if you're not going to school, even if the teachers are understanding of it, you're missing all these tests, you're missing all this homework. Um, and that just makes things worse stressful-wise. So we want to make sure that we emphasize that in the initial visit. And I'd say from a, a healthcare provider standpoint, when the new guidelines came out, I was probably getting uh, you know, 10, 15 emails a week just from alumni of our program and other athletic trainers. Like, how do we interpret this? What, what, what is it about? And because we're used to the protocol, it was like 24 hours in between each step. But now step two, which is light to moderate aerobic exercise, it could be seven days in that one step. Um, it's really going to be dependent on what, you know, the patient can tolerate. And I think the other thing, you know, from an education standpoint is historically we tell people, well, if you, if you got to this next step and you start doing it and you start to get symptoms, stop it. Well, now it's more of light symptoms are okay. It's kind of this, you know, we want to expose you to some symptoms and then, you know, kind of back off. What we want to see is that once you stop that exercise treatment regimen for that day, 
and you sit down, that your symptoms will start to subside. So it's been a learning curve, I think, for a lot of clinicians. And then you get into situations where schools might not have athletic trainers. And I, I think that's where we need to start thinking about incorporating some other healthcare providers to really help because there's not enough athletic trainers. We know they're not at every school. And a lot of this aerobic exercise and some of these other treatments are certainly within the domains of a number of different healthcare providers. Another thing a lot of athletes sort of feel and think, and that's not just athletes, but any patient, is if I run and I get a headache, I'm um, injuring my brain more, right? And that's not the case. Obviously, if you hit your head again, that's different, but that just means you reach your threshold, and that helps us guide, you know, further steps. So if you do go, you know, jog a mile, you know, for example, and get a headache, stop, because it's not going to get better if you keep going, rest, and the next day you can try that again and sort of build off that. That's the simplest way of putting it but you're not injuring your brain more. In fact, this is what we want you to do and kind of see what that threshold is. So you mentioned a little bit about the school caseload. And, and obviously, the majority of our listeners are treating physical therapists. They may have high school athletes. They may have younger athletes. Can you give any advice on or what the current literature is stated on utilization of a screen and that input into their system. You mentioned bright lights already, loud noises, in addition, and, and how that plays into our role as, you know, the, I'm not saying you're not treating them, <laughs> but like from your standpoint, from a physician's standpoint, and, and how we as PTs, ATs, OTs, speech path, even teachers and coaches may assist with navigating the component of a student in the classroom who has expectations of computer-based homework, lights, constant energy in a classroom, in the hallways, even attending practice if they're not cleared to play. Like, how do we help navigate that component of their symptomology plus the exercise component? Yeah, and I think the way that we've kind of managed the school has swung on that same pendulum. You know, I remember an editorial that I wrote in 2010 that we really said, you know, avoid all electronics. Well, I don't know that anyone's ever gotten hurt from texting, right? And I think what we found was all of that kind of strict rest, even on the cognitive side, it led to a lot of social isolation in these athletes, right? We've already taken away sport. Now we're taking away school. And now, well, don't text your friends. You can't be on the call. You can't do this. And so thankfully, the pendulum has shifted a little ways back, and it's the same kind of, of mantra. It's, you know, we want kids in school. We might just need to support them with academic supports, and there's a kind of a tiered system of levels of academic supports, and most of these athletes with concussion just need a very basic level. If it's light sensitivity, give them permission to wear sunglasses in the classroom. If they have motion sensitivity, let, give them a hall pass so they change classes when it's quiet and not in kind of the chaotic secondary school environment. You know, and, and I think that a lot of those conversations, um, and Glennis can speak to this, is between kind of the physician engaging it off. But I think athletic trainers and PTs, we can have conversations with our patients like, are you getting help in school? And if they're not, that should be a red flag for us to reach out to a colleague to try to at least initiate that conversation. Yeah, and this also kind of circles back to mental health, right? So, you know, Really, in concussion, you have sort of physical symptoms, mood symptoms, and then the cognitive symptoms. And mood really tends to be the often overlooked thing that pulls people back. So in general, whether it's an athlete or somebody else, do things that make you feel human, you know, socialized, you know, and obviously there's, they may not be able to go to church or to a movie or something, but do something that kind of exposes you but makes you feel kind of normal. 
And, and these days, of course, technology is such a huge part of it. You know, 10 years ago, we had phones, but it wasn't so integral in our life. And, you know, when I was in high school and college, for example, I didn't have iPads and laptops in my class. I had textbooks and, and you know, notebooks. Still, for those um, concussion patients, it still can be hard to read. There's eye movement or oculomotor issues. And so scanning the words on a page, looking up close, can be bad enough. So if you had a tablet or computer with a backlit screen, it makes their eyes more fatigued, causes more headaches. With migraine, you can have some light sensitivity. So every time I see a new athlete, some of them do fine and really don't need much accommodations. But we, then we still write a little letter. We have a checkbox kind of paper that we've updated with the new guidelines that has return to sport and return to school on it. And we, if they need accommodations, then we say that. And if not, then not. But the accommodations we often recommend, besides the things that Tamara pointed out, which are, which are really important, extra time for assignments and tests. Because it's not like you're you know, not smart after your concussion. It takes you a while, right? So if you just give them more time, they can pass their tests. They can get their homework done. Um, and then if you just stop them early and they fail, then you're causing more harm to the athlete. Um, some schools, as we all know, can be more understanding than others about this. Um, and there's only so much control we have. And then some teachers, right? They're in high school and three of the four teachers, three of the seven teachers are good. And the other ones, you know, I'm doing terrible math because I can't keep up. And they, you know, so there's only so much in our control. But we also, from the physician side, really rely on athletic trainers and therapists because I see them intermittently, but they might go to therapy three times a week or see their athletic trainer every day. So I use that guideline uh, or that guidance, I mean. Um, and if an athlete, ask me, you know, should I continue PT? I'm like, I don't know. What do they say? Right? Like, are you making progress? Are you there yet? Um, and that can, is really, really helpful from a physician's side to have those resources. And I think um, specifically speaking about your question about screens, um, the international guidelines say, you know, it's okay to restrict for the first 24 to 48 hours. Um, but the evidence after 48 hours doesn't really show anything either way with it helping or hurting recovery. So, it's kind of that moderation. You got to find the sweet spot. And I think that's part of our job is to try to really teach our patients how to find out what's going to work for them. And just with physical activity, I know we keep running in on this, if it hurts, stop, right? I mean, if you're on your phone looking at Instagram reels and after about 10 minutes of you have a horrible headache, probably a good idea to just rest, you know? And our occupational therapists who work with vision so much, even if it's on the computer doing homework, I mean, even for any of us, after every 20 minutes, you're supposed to look 20 feet away for 20 seconds. We're all bad at that, but it just fatigues your eyes. And someone who went from normal vision to not normal vision and oculomotor issues in a split second, it's going to hurt and it's going to be hard. And you got to get through therapy, which is always hard enough. But whether it's physical activity, screens, reading, academics, back up if you need to. Take breaks. Turn off the phone, whatever you need to do. Um, it, but while still, with everything else, getting them back to kind of normal human stuff in moderation. So I love that both of you have talked without us even asking about how much you work together with interprofessionally. And so that's one of the main things that we, that's the reason we do the huddle, honestly, is because we're not taking care of athletes, really patients in general, if we're not all working together to make sure they're at the center of our care and that, like you said, okay, well, you think you're done with PT, but does your PT think you're done with PT? Because I don't want to make that decision. So if you guys don't both just mind speaking a little bit, like how important is that connection to other professionals with concussions, um, working with those individuals in your everyday practices? 
Yeah, it's critical. You know, concussion, uh, I've heard it phrased several different ways. Concussion is like a snowflake. Everyone is different. If you've seen one concussion, you've seen one concussion. And that's because, because every patient will present very differently. Um, some might have more cognitive um, symptoms and impairments. Others might be more vestibular. Others might be more anxiety and mood. So there's no one profession that can tackle all of that, right? And now with us starting to think about um, concussion phenotypes, so you might have a concussion, but your presentation is more cognitive or more vestibular or more ocular, the, the path that you're going to go for treatment is going to be very different. And I think that's where having a physician who's kind of like the quarterback of that team to then direct down the right path. And it might be that you're on path A for a little bit and you've made as much progress as you can get there. And now we've got to shift your path. So it, it's super important. And that's why I think that the collaboration and really understanding where everyone's strengths are with this injury uh, is, is vital to that patient-centeredness that we talk about. Our center is multidisciplinary, and to Tamara's point, it has to be, right? I mean, there's definitely some physicians who know about concussion and can talk about kind of the education piece, but if you don't have access to therapists or, you know, even medications or testing or whatever the case may be, it's just not going to get better as fast, right? In the state of Arizona, we're lucky um, that we have a lot of these resources, but there are plenty of places, even in Arizona, people don't know who to go to, right? And not not every athlete or patient even needs a physician or yeah, needs a physician or sometimes even a medical professional at all. But on those people who get stuck, you know, you got to find someone who has those resources available. So you led it perfectly because my question is, it, you both did, they start down path A, whatever path A is, and they hit that proverbial plateau. And whether it's the AT, a PT, an OT, they're stuck. At what point and what advice do you have for that therapist to, or whoever, the provider, really, let me use the word provider, to say, okay, I need help, <laughs> even if it came from another neurologist or another physician, like at what point and, and what things and advice do you have for those therapists or providers to say, I need help, I need to get them to somebody else because it's important because it seems like it's been too long of a period of time before they've made another jump in their progression. Yeah, so, so I, I guess there's probably a couple of ways to look at it. One is, is and I hate to use this word, but it, it's in some of the papers, kind of what would we expect as a normal recovery, right? And so for adults, college age, around 14 days or two weeks, in our younger kids, it's 21 to 28 days as kind of a normal recovery. Anything over 28 days, it's typically identified as persisting post-concussion symptoms or PPCS. We've moved away from the post-concussion syndrome uh, language because a syndrome kind of makes it seem like you're stuck with it forever, and we know that's often not the case. So using those time frames perhaps as at least some guidance, again, every patient's going to be different. The other thing is we're always doing serial reevaluations with patients with concussion. It's typical. Um, it's, you know, we want to just see what kind of progress there is. And we have a lot of tools that we can use. You know, often um, kind of our battery includes at least a graded symptom scale, some kind of cognitive assessment, some type of motor control or ocular motor assessment. And so we kind of have this mix of the subjective patient input, 
plus these objective findings along with our clinical exam. And if we notice, like, you know, their symptoms really started to drop, but now they've just kind of plateaued and we've tried these different interventions and they're not working, it's time to kind of reevaluate, um, like we would, I think, with any patient. But I think those are, you know, a couple of parameters that we want to you know, look at. And then it's, you know, call a friend, find, you know, phone a friend um, who might be in a different discipline and kind of bounce those ideas off each other to, you know, I've been doing this. Do you think it might be more appropriate that they go see an OT now or something along those lines? I agree with all of that. And we talked about this before we got started, so I hope I'm not getting ahead of ourselves too much. But every state's a little different, but in the state of Arizona, the providers who are authorized to clear an athlete back to the sport are physicians, so MDs or DOs, athletic trainers, um, and then mid-level providers, so nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Um, and we talked about this before that, frankly, even as a physician, I will, I will say a lot of physicians aren't all that comfortable with concussion. A lot of mid-level providers aren't. So we do lean on our athletic trainers quite a bit. Um, but we have athletic trainers come to us and they say, I think this athlete's okay, but just, you know, what do you think? Um, and as therapists, uh, you know, again, in the list of people who are authorized to return an athlete back, you know, you do need um, an athletic trainer or, or a physician or mid-level. So that would be another reason to refer. So you're talking about a little bit those providers that can return to sport. Can we talk a little bit about what the return to sport guidelines, and we'll talk about Arizona, uh, what that kind of looks like when we return an athlete, what are some of the testing that we have them do, what should that look like before they actually get back uh, onto the field? Yeah, so, you know, as we're kind of uh, working through that, that treatment part of the return progression, you know, they often start out with some light aerobic exercise. And the whole point of that is if we increase heart rate, increase blood pressure, are we increasing symptoms? And, you know, once they kind of make it through through that, we typically want to start with individual sport-specific activities. And in the new guidelines, this is still kind of under that treatment component. So the way that the new return strategy is kind of there's three stages, a kind of a cutoff checkpoint, and then three more stages. So it's a six-stage progression. And I like to think of the first three as the treatment. So one being symptom-limited activity, take your dog for a walk, hang out with your family. Step two is the light aerobic exercise as a treatment. Step three are these individual sport-specific activities as a treatment. So that's where I think it gets to be fun um, as a provider. Um, if they're a soccer player, we want them doing some cutting, agility. They can kick a ball at a goal, those kind of things. And from the mental health standpoint, I think that's huge. Just being able to touch a soccer ball or a baseball um, is, is important. And that individual sport specific is kind of bringing in coordination, sensory motor type activities, just like we would with orthopedic injuries. It's just a different condition. Between the third and the fourth is kind of where we transition from the treatment standpoint to what I think we're more comfortable with as a return to sport specific activity progression. And at that point is where we want them to be asymptomatic from new symptoms that may have arisen from the concussion if we're using adjunct assessment tools like computerized neurocognitive testing, any type of balance assessment, we want those to be back to um, either baseline or within normal limits if we're using norm data. And then that's where we kind of do the, the medical clearance. Now, when we move into four, that's still the individu individual skills, but it can be within a team environment. So the football player can be out on the field in the red penny, engaging in practice, running routes in a non-contact manner full contact practice, and then full contact competition. So it 
there's similarities, but again, that treatment piece is a little bit different. So what ideally the entire thing should be supervised by healthcare providers, um, but it's going to be especially those last ones where they're back at the school um, or perhaps under the direction of a PT if they don't have an AT at their school um, to really get through those elements. Something I've gotten in the habit of doing early on is asking them what their goal is, right? And occasionally they don't want to go back to their sport. It's, you still, you know, treat them and do all that stuff, but they don't want to. Um, and then sometimes there, there have been times where, you know, my, my parents really want me to do this, my coach really wants me to do this, so I'll just say you can't. Even if there's no objective reason why, you can't. I'll be the bad guy. Um, <laughs> but on the flip side, if they do want to go back, which is most of the time, you know, we do start talking about this kind of early on. Now, obviously, we're not going to talk about kind of dates on anything, but like, okay, this is the plan. You're going to start doing this stuff. Now, on the more kind of, you know, pessimistic side here, when things are quote unquote just concussions, so non-lesional, no scarring of the brain, no you know bleeding, et cetera, um, and they qualify as kind of mild TBI from the criteria, all of this stuff we've been talking about applies. Now, otherwise they're not great agreed upon protocols. So there's other factors that we all kind of do use our clinical judgment on, and, and I'm sure there's plenty of colleagues who have different thoughts on this than me. You know, Sometimes, depending on the situation, so if an athlete or anybody comes to us with a quote-unquote concussion, but there's something weird on their exam or something in their symptoms that doesn't add up, or if they've had multiple concussions and the history is a little unclear, um, we often order an MRI in that situation. And most of the time, the MRI is fine, meaning, I mean, I guess we can't prove anything, but right now, there's no evidence of anything. Um, if there is something lesional, if you will, some, even if it's a small shear injury, me and my colleagues that I've worked with over the years really... I think a lot of us sort of can understand this, is maybe you should not be playing football if you already have sort of structural permanent damage to your brain that we can see. And that's pretty objective to me, but I know there's plenty of people who don't agree with that, so I'm not saying that's a hard and fast rule. Um, the other thing, too, I've had athletes decide this themselves, that you know, with each, sub each subsequent injury uh, textbook is it takes a little longer to recover after each one. Not everyone's that way. But I had a collegiate soccer player several years ago who it took six, eight months after her third one. She's like, I just don't want to do this anymore because the next time it might take a year, you know. And so she made that decision and I supported it. Um, and another thing that comes up sometimes is, you know, an athlete recovers by all measures that we've got. And again, there's some of this is objective, a lot of it's subjective. Um, but they go back and they start doing kind of the more contact stuff and even kind of mild standard hits for a football player using that example um, causes symptoms. Maybe not a full-on concussion, but like I can't even do basic stuff, right? So going back to their sports delay is just not going to work. So there are times that are outside of just the, you know, kind of when you get through the progression that maybe we need to have a kind of a higher level talk here and involve people, whether it's with the parents or the athlete by themselves or, you know, all together after that. So let's kind of, I mean, it is football season, so let's talk about that for a little bit. That example that you just talked about where they've made it through the first three stages They've moved on to stage four and maybe five where they've, you know, they had the pinion so they can't get hit. They've worked through that. Now they're starting some contact and they get hit. What are the steps that are typically taken when that occurs? I mean, obviously you said pull them in, talk to them, maybe talk without their parents, with their parents, you know, without any support network, with support network. But, you know, is that a situation where we're going to look at additional imaging, ordering to see if there's something else going on, especially if their history is foggy or they haven't told any of us really the full story? You know, can you kind of walk me, walk our listeners, walk people through what to do? Because I think that's probably a situation that occurs a lot where people don't know what to do. And I'm going to raise my hand and say, I wouldn't know what to do in that situation. <laughs> 
Uh, totally case-by-case basis. And sometimes the answer is easier than others. <laughs> MRI is an option, you know, and, and this is, again, completely provider-specific um, with anybody, not just athletes. If someone's taking long, and so for, you know, the non-athletes, we can give them a little bit longer than that to call it long, right? It's kind of arbitrary, two, three months, what have you. Um, an athlete, more than a month, maybe, like, hey, let's just make sure it's nothing worse than a concussion, which is bad enough, right, but worse than a concussion. Um, and I, you know, have had early on athletes come to me who they were sent to me because that same exact thing happened. And when you sort of take a step, so obviously you have to take a step back, right? Stop doing that. Um, but then, you know, what do you do? And so sometimes with a detailed exam or, you know, further questioning, they'll kind of admit to stuff that maybe like, well, okay, maybe that's not quite normal. One of the things I see often and, and therapists, I'm sure can, um, you know, agree with this is when athletes say, I just don't feel right. And that is a hard thing to treat. Um, but if you really pulled out some of those ocular motor issues, so they're kind of fuzzy vision and they can't concentrate very well or something. So if you can find something like that, that's really helpful. And I have had that happen where it's like, it sounds kind of enough. You do some, I mean, our cog or ocular motor assessments, very um, basic compared to people who actually have equipment for these things and knowledge on it. But sometimes you can pull that out. And there are definitely other times, and I'll let Tamara maybe see if you've had kind of this experience where we just really don't have a great answer other than giving it more time. Yeah, and I, I think in some of those cases, um, you know, the the number one thing is obviously pull back. It's fine to kind of move backwards a little bit in the return and see, okay, now let's go back to non-contact for a few days and see what happens there. If still, you know, there's still symptoms, then I think some additional testing, um, you know, could be warranted. And depending on the types of symptoms and what's causing it, you know, it might be worth a full vestibular therapy evaluation, seeing a neuropsychologist and going through a formal neuropsychological assessment, not the computerized ones that, you know, are a, a substitute for that. Uh, because I think there's there's a lot that we certainly want to think about. If it's the athlete who's not sure that they want to play, uh, you know, meeting with a psychologist or a counselor could be, you know, to work through how do they have that conversation with their parents if you know, pressures coming from that way. So it expands, I think, our healthcare team even a little bit further in those cases where we have a longer recovery or a more complicated situation. What are some resources that you guys would recommend, whether it's in-state and maybe I'm sure you guys know some nationally as well? Because I think what happens, especially if somebody doesn't have an athletic trainer, and if you have an athletic trainer, please go talk to them. If you have any <laughs> symptoms and report early for the love of God, that's from your local athletic trainer. Um, <laughs> But if you don't have an athletic trainer, you're a parent maybe with like a younger athlete, you're playing rec sports, whatever it is, what are just some of those resources that we can provide, whether it's in this state or nationally to those individuals to make sure they're seeing the right people? Because as we know, with anything in healthcare, what's most important is you get to the right person to get you through the process as quickly as possible and handle you you know, the best way possible. So are there just some resources that you might be able to give out to because honestly, probably some of the practitioners are like, I'm not really sure where to send things. Yeah, I'll kind of I'll kind of start um, more globally, and then Glennis can talk a little bit about you know within Arizona. But every state has either a brain injury alliance association or a brain injury association of America, and oftentimes I think we think of them outside of kind of the sport concussion world. I will disclose I am on the board for the brain injury alliance of Arizona, but their whole job is advocacy. And they have information and referral specialists that you can call, you know, and I'm in Queen Creek, I'm in here, and they can help at least direct you to some resources. Um, they've got some great information on their website. So every state has one of those organizations. 
Um, and then secondly, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention has a robust concussion website. They have education courses for coaches, parents, healthcare providers. They have handouts. They have um, infographics and posters that you can brand with your school logo. They're downloadable. You can change the colors on them to match your school. Like they're so user friendly. It's their heads up toolkit. So I think those are two great resources that anywhere across the country can get their hands on. I agree. I think those are probably the easiest to access and probably um, kind of more global ones. Um, and those handouts sometimes that education is enough. And if not, again, every state has their brain injury alliance. Um, and we use this for all patients, but sometimes they have a list of, you know, they have different uh, specialists and providers on there. And I don't know if you guys saw, um, you know, World Series applies to us here in Arizona right now. There's a <laughs> commercial. I can't remember what the organization was. I sort of saw it in passing. There's a commercial of this little family with melon heads. It says, protect your melon. They're all kind of walking, distracted on their phones, and the mom hits her head and gets up and stumbles and stuff. So it's a concussion something website. So these resources are growing. Um, I think the two that Tamara um, mentioned are very reliable and important. So we just want to thank both of you for being here. We are so lucky to have your expertise. I want to remind everybody again that they are both going to be speaking at the huddle April 5th and 6th. And if you're in Arizona, they are both local resources who, as you can tell, have endless amounts of knowledge and experience. So please reach out uh, to them, to the places that they work, and use them as needed, as we've talked about. It's so important that we work together, especially with uh, athletes with concussions, and we get those athletes back onto the field as safely as possible. So thank you again for joining us. We appreciate it. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, feedback, and or topic suggestions, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at therapistsinmotion at spoonerpt.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 